Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? It's the magic mix of muck where land and water meet. Just listen to the ooze of the mud and imagine the scene. Along with the mud, grasses peeking above the water, birds singing in the background. Canada has lots of this kind of stuff, but it used to have a lot more. But as cities and farms have grown, the wetlands have been shrinking. And that, for those who love bogs, marshes and swamps, is a tragedy. Not just because it's nature lost, it's also because they're Canada's secret star in the world of carbon storage. This week, we're on a quest to look at why wetlands are more than worthy and are worth protecting and restoring in the name of climate change. So let's just hear a little of that again. Me, I love the sound and feel of a good muckabout, but I get it. Others might not feel the same way. A smelly swamp is best avoided. Fine then, we will leave it to the critters and the scientists to embrace the joy of a marshy, boggy morass. I love tromping around in wetlands. It feels a little bit like walking in a waterbed. That is Christina Davies. She's a research scientist for the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. And she knows you may not quite get her passion for wetlands. Because they do look like big mud puddles when you don't understand how important they are. I think we don't always give them the value that they really deserve. And I think that people understanding why they're important is a, a big step to conserving them and slowing the rate of loss. Davy runs a conservation ecology lab at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. She's watched as the number and size of wetlands shrink. The heavily settled landscape in southwestern Ontario has been heavily modified by human use in the last hundred years. So areas that used to be wetlands have been converted either for urban use, for cities and towns that people need to live in, and also into agricultural fields to provide the food that we need to feed people in the province. And so where there used to be extensive wetlands stretching across the landscape that these critters could live in, it's estimated that 69% of southern Ontario's original wetlands were lost by 1982, with an additional 3.5% loss between 1982 and 2002, and further losses since then. So that means that about three quarters of the area's wetlands are now gone. And look across the country, Davy says you'll see wetland loss throughout southern Canada. Though the scale may vary, there are two common factors. And so where wetlands have been removed, they're primarily replaced by urban areas or by agricultural fields. Right. So we're talking farmlands, we're talking cities, we're talking roads. That's right. All the things that, that humans in contemporary Canada need. But remember what she said earlier? I think that people understanding why they're important is a, a big step to conserving them and slowing the rate of loss. So they might not look like much, but what Davy wants you to understand is that wetlands are a climate powerhouse. It, it looks like a mucky puddle. Even that sheen of tiny little animals is actually pulling chemical pollutants out of the water and helping to keep it clean. But also the wetlands serve to slow down the flow of water, which means that there's water available 
in the wetland area to the plants and animals that need it, but also that it doesn't arrive too quickly at those downstream locations, causing huge floods. They sound like little miracles, (laughs) climate change miracles. They really are. (laughs) They really are. Climate change and biodiversity miracles. Pat Chow Fraser has been studying the wetlands around the coasts of Ontario's Great Lakes for about two decades. And it's fair to say she too is smitten. I dare anyone to go into some of these wetlands in their wildest state and not be completely impressed. It's actually a sanctuary. Chow Fraser is a biology professor at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. She sees how climate change is disrupting data that used to be reliable. One of the main things that are affected uh, by climate change is the change in the pattern of water level fluctuations. It's normal for these wetlands at the edges of Ontario's Great Lakes to go through patterns of high and low. But what happened um, in the last two decades is that We've had over 14 years of sustained low below the long-term mean. And the last time this happened, we only had eight years of continuous low water in the 30s and 40s. Then just as abruptly, it went up uh, almost immediately within two years, and it was the fastest rate of rebound that, that had ever been recorded. And when those patterns changed, so did the vegetation. There are lots of plants that uh, people refer to as weed sometimes and that clog up the boats, but those are the the really great habitats for fish. And if that water goes down and stays down for a very long time, then that's going to have an impact on the amount of fish habitat that exists. The trees actually started to establish within the meadow zone. So we started seeing Uh, pine trees and alders starting to grow in the meadow itself, which never, uh, this has never happened before. And all that, of course, has an impact on the creatures there. But what exactly the future holds? Well, that's unfortunately a big question mark, because this is so unprecedented and it's so unpredictable. Chow Fraser says protecting the remaining wetlands in the Great Lakes is key. Because of those fluctuating water levels, she wants them to have space, a buffer to expand and retreat. Well, the buffer means that we have to make sure that we we do not build in anything that's below the high water mark. Um, and we also need to know where the low, how low it can be. And unfortunately, We don't know, and the best thing to do is to let nature have some more space to adapt to these changing environments. My name is Mervyn Child. I am third-generation Canadian from Bristol, England, on my father's side. And I am a member of the First Nations community of the Kwagyur on my mother's side. Mervyn Child's Indigenous ancestors relied on wetlands for food, medicine, and culture. Now Kwagyur First Nation members are working to restore and protect them from the effects of climate change. In March, they won a B.C. government grant to help reverse the effects of logging and erosion that have damaged the area's rich saltwater marsh. That project is still in the planning stages, but I asked him to describe the wetland and what it has provided to past generations. 
everything. There's so much waterfowl, of course, in there. There's lots of migratory birds, and uh, there's dog salmon, chums, pinks, and coho in there, steelhead in there, and a variety of trout. So the annual harvest cycle there would have been profound, making it an incredibly rich environment and well protected. There would have been lots of protocol around protecting it and owning it and and of course protecting your resources, your food resources, because, well, they're yours. But now all of that has changed. He says rising sea levels and the growing intensity of storm surges there threaten the balance of freshwater and saltwater. Logging has also taken its toll, and Child has borne witness to it. In past years, he was a youth leader, and he liked to take his kids to a favorite swimming hole. Well, those water holes, and those swimming holes where those children gathered and I got to know, well, they're gone. The river is, doesn't even flow in that stream anymore. The river gets so full of debris from washout logging activity and slides upriver that this debris comes down piles up, dams itself, and it finds a new way through the forest floor. So that that's a major, major issue when we're talking about salmon habitat and how can they possibly survive in a system that is continually being disturbed. You know, it, it's just, it, all you have to do is look at it, right? The wetlands have provided much more than recreation and food. They've also acted as one big medicine cabinet. In fact, Child says elders in the community have identified at least 75 medicinal plants in the local marsh areas. I would venture to say wetlands the world over have produced so many valuable medicinal plants and plants that were main staple. There is a sinofoil root there, for instance, and that's where Glaxiwe gets its name from Tluxum, which is a, a root plant. And so it was a main staple. It was handled with great care as it was prepared and presented. And uh, even in the description of how it was handled from the, the right-hand side of the house to the left-hand side of the house, that there was great religious application to its treatment, its preparation, and its delivery to the visitors. Child knows so much about the past, so I also asked him for his thoughts on what happens if they lose those rich wetland areas. You know, what if? What if that ecology, like no other ecology on the planet, you know, what What if? It's, it's rich. It's beyond words. It's beyond description. It, uh, all of these things have so much value. They stand alone. There's no other place on the planet that is shaped by the tide and the wind and the glaciation, the way that that spot is. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, let's head across Canada once again, this time to the Atlantic region. As you've heard, one of the many climate benefits of wetlands is their ability to store carbon. My next guest has been studying the salt marshes around the Bay of Fundy. 
Gail Shimura is a professor in the Department of Geography at McGill University. Hello. Hi. Let, let's start by painting a picture here. Simply put, what is a salt marsh? In Canada, we can simply describe salt marshes as grassy meadows that are flooded by the ocean tides twice a day. And, and to, to give me a sense of what they look like. They look like a meadow. <laughs> One time I had a student very disappointed. She goes, it just looks like a grass, like an overgrown lawn. <laughs> um, it's lots of gra green grass and there are some a few flowering, you know, forbs, uh, wildflowers that grow in them, but generally they're dominated by these grassy plants. And that's what makes them such a good carbon sink because they have tremendous root systems that store the carbon dioxide that the plants take out of the air. Thank so yeah, they're not, they're not that outrageous looking. They're just excellent carbon sinks and also excellent habitat. So tell me more about that without getting too scientific on me. Um, how does how does the salt marsh absorb carbon from the atmosphere and then store it? You talked about the long root system. Yeah, well, like all plants, all green plants, they undergo photosynthesis. And during that, they take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And it gets stored in both the green part of the plant, but also three to five times more gets stored in the organic matter in the roots in the soil and those roots stay there in this kind of ecosystem they don't decompose very much because the soil is so wet and they just keep accumulating more and more soil as sea level rises and it's simply plant material that gets preserved now you've been focusing on the bay of fundy between new brunswick and nova scotia why is that area was kind of like a sunken treasure chest for carbon well, they actually, I think all of Eastern Canada's coastline is pretty much a sunken treasure chest. But I, thanks to Environment and Climate Change Canada, I was supported to look really in depth, to make a bad pun, at the salt marshes on the Bay of Fundy. And because of the huge tides, the tidal flooding brings in a lot of mud from those mudflats in the bay, and that traps that organic matter keeps it from washing away and helps to keep it preserved and so these marshes build as sea level rise and they've been building for over 3,000 years so we have 3,000 years of carbon stored in these marshes so just so you know bad puns are accepted on what on earth <laughs> okay. and I wondered how do you collect and measure the carbon from the marshes very carefully um, <laughs> The hardest part is just getting it out of the mud and not compacting it and squishing it too much because we have to know what volume we have. And once we've done that, and there are all kinds of gadgets, sometimes our bare hands, uh, and then we just bring it back to the lab. You simply dry it, grind it up. We have gone through probably a hundred uh, coffee bean grinders because we simply use that. And then we can put it in a furnace and ignite it and determine how much weight is lost after the ignition, which simply represents the organic matter that was in there. All right, so then let's, let's find out the answer to the question, question. How much carbon can the salt marshes in the Bay of Fundy suck out of the atmosphere? The rates are still difficult to determine. We have rates for some marshes, but determining rates because of all the mud is a little difficult, but we do know that 
over their history, the Bay of Fundy marshes have stored 52 million tons of carbon dioxide. Can you give me a sense of how that translates for those of us who, who just see that and see a number? Okay, 52 million tons we calculated. That could be equal to the emissions of vehicles that drove 225 billion kilometers. And that, that's with something like 216, the year 216 estimates from the US EPA. Okay, that sounds pretty significant. How does it stack up against other uh, so-called natural carbon sinks? Yep, or natural climate solutions, we're also calling them. Well, most wetlands will store carbon, things with flooded soils, but marine wetlands, the salt marshes, unlike freshwater wetlands like Hudson Bay lowlands, um, which emit methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide, salt marshes can even act as a methane sink. The microbes in the soil will actually take some methane out of the atmosphere and transform it into something that's safe. The big problem, the big question for Fundy in particular is, can we restore all the marshes that were drained? Because we actually have, we lost 77% of the Bay of Fundy marshes through diking and draining. Right. But we have a fantastic opportunity to reflood these systems. And we know that we would get a lot of carbon stored so you because can't... they would simply start to function just as a salt marsh. So I, I want to continue on that with, in just a second, but I just want to bring bring you back again to this, this comparison with other um, uh, natural carbon sinks. Um, does that then, what you're suggesting, does that make wetlands sort of the... Um, the uh, top star in, in the global <laughs> carbon sink race? Is it, is it the winner? I think so. Um, marine wetlands, salt marshes, and man their tropical cousins, mangroves, in terms of rates of carbon accumulation per year and their ability to keep it in the soil. So we have, there. there is a um, mangrove system in Belize, for instance, it's been accumulating carbon dioxide for 9,000 years. Um, 9,000 years ago, we had ice all over Canada, so we don't have systems quite as old. But we're up there. <laughs> so, I think 3,000 years is darn good <laughs> for accumulating carbon. Now, we touched on this. Some, some of these wetlands are lost to development, and the other impact is sea level rise from climate change. So tell me how affected are the wetlands of, of the Bay of Fundy by these kinds of challenges? Well, we found that systems where the tidal range is high, like in the Bay of Fundy, it ranges from 6 to 11 meters up and down every day. Uh, these systems are more resilient to sea level rise. They are likely to survive increasing rates of sea level rise. Also, Eastern Canada is extremely rural as compared to Western Canada and the New England states, which means there's considerable open land above many of these salt marshes. And as sea level rises, it will start to flood inland and we know by doing paleoecological studies that the salt marshes actually migrate inland over forest or grassland 
or whatever. So we actually have the opportunity for the active carbon sink to continue and maybe even expand in some cases with rising sea level because it has been expanding with rising sea level. You And you've studied marsh restoration in places like Olak, New Brunswick. How easy is it to restore a salt marsh? And the Bay of Fundy restoration is actually fairly simple because we just have to break dikes open because we have dikes that keep out the seawater and it'll keep the marsh drained. And if we open up those dikes, tidal water starts to come in and very quickly deposits all that Bay of Fundy mud. Uh, when we took measurements in a site at Olac, which had only been under restoration for six years, we were storing 1,329 grams of carbon per square, square meter per year. Well, actually not we, this marsh was. And it was amazing. It was way above anything we expected. So they immediately serve as tremendous carbon sinks, as good a carbon sink as the natural or undisturbed marshes in the same region. Thank you very much for, for telling us about uh, Canada's world-beating salt marshes. Yep, they certainly are. Thank you. So no matter what you call them, marshes, bogs, swamps, they do play a valuable role in the climate. In Okotoks, Alberta, the town is taking that literally, actually putting a price on all the work their wetlands are doing. Sherry Young is the climate change and energy specialist with the town of Okotoks. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Laura. A natural asset inventory. It actually sounds really technical. What is it? Uh, well, it is kind of technical, but what it is generally is the way asset management is normally done in a municipality is they look at all the things that we build that provide services to residents. For example, roads and water treatment plants and all of that. And they put it in a database and they say, this is how we provide service to residents. But we decided to count up all of the natural assets of so all of the natural systems that provide services to the town of Okotoks air quality and carbon sequestration and stuff like that. And we counted those up and put a value on them so that we could tell people how much those are worth to us as a town. So how different are they then from the built assets? Well, they're quite different. Um, the problem with the built asset or the benefit of a built asset actually is that they are purpose built for one service. So if you build a water line that takes water to all your residents' homes, it is built for that. It doesn't do anything else. So it's easy to measure how much service that provides and how much you need. The way natural assets work is that every natural asset, for example, a river, provides multiple services. So the river provides water. That's where we our wells are for the town of Oktoks or in the Sheep River. Um, but it doesn't go directly to people's houses. But it also provides habitat. It provides services like urban heat island effect countering. So it keeps things cool as, as temperatures go up. It sequesters carbon within the riparian areas and all of the trees that surround it and the plants there. And it has historical value as the town of Okotoks is uh, long known for its traditional lands uh, for the Blackfoot people. Why did you want to assess the value of these things like woods, lakes and wetlands? What's the end goal here? 
Well, in development processes, those places, those areas are known as green fields. And the way the development planners look at them is that they're kind of useless, right? They're not currently providing a use. And I wanted to change that. And so did the town of Okotoks. So Okotoks is long known for its sustainability stuff, especially because we have a limited amount of water in Southern Alberta. So we wanted to know not just how much the water was provided, but what the rest of the assets were providing to the town of Okotoks. To what end? Was it to discourage development or or was it something else? Yeah, the intent is a couple of things. It's to, first of all, uh, make the public aware of how ecosystem services were being provided by areas that people thought were being useless. It was also to incorporate those lands into our development and planning purposes. Um, And then thirdly, it was also to use it as we were developing areas. For example, if we were going to put a bike trail through a certain area or we were going to develop in a certain area, we wanted to be able to look at that piece of land and prioritize it for cost and value as we integrated it into our plans for development. Um, We think that these services are priceless and these assets are priceless, but if you don't put a price on them, they don't get valued. So we weren't overly worried about getting exactly precise, but we wanted an, um, a general idea of how much they are worth so that we could bring that to the table when negotiating planning. So interesting. I mean, I, you're seeing Okotoks change as much as the rest of the world is changing with a changing climate. Is, does that make this valuation even more important or, or is it important because of absolutely. climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the global averages has gone up by one degree in Okotoks over the last hundred years has gone up by three degrees. So the reason this is really important is in the future, we'd like to be able to identify wetland areas and this will support our idea to restore those drained wetlands uh, in the future and incorporate wetlands into our residential areas that perhaps currently are being flooded or will be more prone to flooding with more storms in the future. We want to make sure those wetlands are incorporated into urban areas to counteract the urban heat island effect. I absolutely think that this is crucial to not only restoring wetlands for their own sake, but for increasing carbon sequestration to counteract our 404,000 tons of carbon that we emit into the air every year, as well as to adapt to increasing storm events and increasing heat events in Okotoks. Right. Okay, Sherry, here is the million-dollar question. What price did Okotoks put on its wetlands? So it's actually a $3.2 million question, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's not the land or the replacement cost. That's just for the services it provides, right? That's absolutely just for the services, uh, the bundled wetland services provided by those ecosystems. Yep. Now, now that you've put a dollar value on those wetlands, wait, wait how long ago was that that you that you published the the we did dollar last year? What what has happened since then? So what we've done is we bring the natural asset uh, database into play when we are talking to developers and assessing their land. So developers are required to do a biophysical assessment on the land that they're developing, and before now we didn't have a way to double check that. So if they were telling us that this was the biophysical, these are biophysical properties, this is how much soil is there, these are the animals that are there, these are the plants that are there, we didn't have a way to check that. And we do now, right? So if they're telling us these things are there, we can go back to our natural asset inventory and say, well, 
that may be true, but we have valued those higher than you think. So we need you to work around these wetlands while you're building your new residential area. Okay. So you've put this price on the wetlands and, and other um, natural assets in Okotoks. But where do you hope this all will go in the future? Personally, I'm hoping that everybody sees the value in natural wetlands and we preserve everything we have. Realistically, I think that it will call people's attention. And when we put a price on it, it means that they see that as a bottom line. So what we're doing is using the same language to talk to developers as they're using to talk to us. So they will see that the impact or the amount we're incorporating into their development to say, hey, those have an additional service. You need to incorporate the cost of those services or the production from those services into your development. Why does this matter so much to you? Well, I live here. I uh, have children here. I have roots here. And the land that we live in and the world generally, we don't have anywhere else to go. You know, I know it's a cliche to say there's no planet B, but really as much as we'd like to get on a plane, although that's impossible these days, and go somewhere better, there isn't anywhere better. Canada's a lovely place. Alberta's a wonderful place. It has lots of great natural assets. And we want to preserve those and put our roots deep into the soil in southern Alberta to preserve it. You make me want to visit Okotoks, you know. No, well, come on out, Laura. I'll take you on a tour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sherry, thank you so much for your time. Not a problem, Laura. It was lovely to talk to you. That does it for us this week. Thanks to the team, associate producers Serena Renner and Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.